passage this morning is found in Paul's letter, his first letter to the Thessalonian church. So if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians, we'll be looking at chapter 5. We're going to be focusing this morning on chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, but I'm going to read now 12 through 22 to just give us the, the context in which these couple of verses fall. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12 this morning. And as you hear me read this, as you follow along in your own Bible, I want you just to note that, that all of these verbs here and all of these yous that you see there, the, the word you, are all plural. So, so hear them as Paul writing to a church, not to individuals. And we'll talk about that as we go on. This is what it says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Holy Father, your word is a light unto our paths. It's the key to the kingdom of heaven. It is our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan. Your word is the school of all wisdom and the only food and nourishment for our souls. So, Father, we pray that you would feed us this morning. Illuminate our minds and hearts to understand your word. Renew our minds. Transform our hearts, Lord. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of your Son. Amen. You can be seated. One of the worst words in the English language is this wait. Right? Waiting. We don't want to wait. We hate waiting. We hate the waiting room, right? Especially if you have young kids. They're squirming all everything, licking things, touching things, always licking. I don't We hate waiting for packages to arrive. I mean, how many times have you checked like on the tracking of a package that you've ordered? You you know that it's it's coming to a week from now, two days from now. You keep checking the tracking just to see if maybe it's coming early because you can't wait. I mean, Amazon has messed all of us up. Two days now, two days. It takes two days to get here. Good grief! I need it now. We hate waiting for that. We hate waiting for our food to come in a restaurant every time. Someone comes out of the kitchen with the plates of food where kind of, everyone kind of turns their head. Is that, is that, no, that's not our food. They sigh as they walk right past our table. We don't like waiting. We want what we want and we want it now. Now, this is kind of ironic for us as Christians because the Christian life is foundationally a life of waiting. 
Well, what are we waiting for? Well, as we've already been talking about this morning, as we've sung and as we'll continue to sing, we're waiting for the return of Christ. The scriptures describe the Christian life this way a couple of times, multiple times. We're going to just look at two real quick. Titus 2.13 says that we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.13 puts it this way. We're waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Amen. We are waiting We're waiting for for Christ to come. We're waiting for that trumpet blast. We're waiting for Jesus to to crack the sky and descend in glory. We're waiting for the consummated reign of Christ on earth. Waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. We're, We're waiting. We're always waiting. But God in His goodness has designed our life this way. We're not just waiting is the point. And the message of 1 Thessalonians is all about this waiting time, this in-between time of the coming of Christ, the first time in Christ's second coming. And Paul's aim in 1 Thessalonians, kind of his main point, if you had to sum it up in a couple of words, is that God is working in our waiting. As we're waiting, God is working amongst us. And so if we claim to be his people... Paul's telling us here, he's telling the Thessalonians, he's telling us, we need to join God in the work that he is doing. Okay. Hello. Check, check. So, what is God doing? What what is God at work at while we wait? Well, the easiest way to see that is to look at Paul's prayers in 1 Thessalonians. I mean, we can pretty much tell for most people what they value by what they pray for, right? Look, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Here's one of Paul's prayers. He has two kind of prayers here in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, this is what he prays. Now may, the Lord, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Okay, he wants to go back to Thessalonica. And may the Lord make you increase, I love that verb, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So can you see his focus is His prayer is, God, may you make them grow in love for one another so that you, God, can establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God, yourself, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. God's work in the meantime is this, to make our hearts into conformity with Jesus so that when Jesus comes, our hearts will be blameless in holiness before God. God is at work in his people. He's preparing them. He's preparing us for the return of Christ. He's working in his church so that he can present us to himself, blameless in holiness. This is God's work. This is what God is doing until Christ returns. He's preparing the bride for the bridegroom, for his son. We see the same thing in chapter 5, verse 23. 
We haven't got to this, this verse yet, but look, look at chapter 5, verse 23. Here's the second of Paul's prayers. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Notice both prayers. This is all God's work. This is what God is doing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What an encouraging prayer and passage. It's, it's basically the same thing as the other one. You see, this is what God will surely do. He, he's purchased a people for himself with his own blood, and now he's working in us, sanctifying us, purifying us, making us more and more like Jesus, so that when Christ returns, we will be ready for him, blameless in holiness before him. The king will return, and when he returns, his bride will be ready. There's no question there. Why is there no question? Because this is what God is doing. He is faithful. He will surely do it. This is Paul's aim. This is is his mission. This is his desire and his confident expectation for the Thessalonians and for us. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we just sit around and say, hey, I'm glad God's at work. I'll just kind of check out. It's, it's, it, it doesn't mean that. And it's actually the exact opposite. Because God is at work, we are to work out our salvation, our sanctification corporately as a church and individually knowing and trusting that God is at work in us. We put effort into preparing ourselves and our church for the return of Christ, knowing and trusting that God is at work among us, fueling our efforts and making them effective by the power of his spirit. And so then that understanding that raises a question, well, well, what should this look like? What, What should a community, a church who is working on this while God is, while we are waiting, look like? That's what chapter 5 verse 12 through 22, is about. Here, Paul gives a list of brief commands to the church, things that that should be worked out in their community as they obey Christ more and more. Things that should become normative parts of the church and of their Christian lives. This morning, we're going to focus in on, on three imperatives, three commands that Paul gives the Thessalonian church, three actions lifestyles that should be normative in our church. Three commands that we as individuals should seek to obey and conform our lives to by the grace of God. So look, look at chapter 5, verse 16. We, we've done 12 through 15 in other sermons. You can find those on the website if you're interested. And sometime we'll get to all the stuff about prophecies, which should be really fun. We're going to look at 16 through 18 this morning. And we're just going to go piece by piece. Really simple. So number one, look at verse 16. Paul commands, again, this is a plural command, rejoice always. We are to rejoice always. Now again, Paul is writing to this church. So, so think of it like this. You, if you want, you could put a y'all in there, and that will give you the plural sense. Y'all rejoice always, okay? Or if that sounds too southern, you could, you could put it like this. Del Cerro Baptist Church, rejoice always. It's, it's a straightforward command. Our lives and our church 
are to be marked by a continual and always ongoing rejoicing. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to rejoice? What is, what is Paul kind of getting at when he commands us to rejoice always? I mean, there's not much context here for that command. He just says, rejoice always. What it means is this, and we'll see this in other scriptures. It means that we are to continually express our delight in who God is and what God has done and is doing. We're to continually express our delight in God and in his works. That, that is a Christian, that's the way a Christian rejoices. And, and how do we know this? Again, there's, no, there's not much context here, but there's plenty of places that Paul writes about this. One way we can, we can see this is look at verse 18. So he gives these three commands, rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, and then he adds this to all of them, that this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So from that even, we know that our rejoicing is to be in Christ Jesus. Now, but Paul shows us other places as well. Philippians 4.4, you've probably heard this verse before. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So we're rejoicing, not just rejoicing endlessly or aimlessly, but rejoicing in the Lord, who he is, what he is doing. We see this again in Romans chapter 5, verse 11. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You can see both of those there. We rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. So there's, we rejoice in God through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's God's works. We're rejoicing in God, his person, his attributes, his character, and what he is doing in the world we are commanded to constantly, to always rejoice in God, in Christ. And Paul also gives us great examples of this in his letters. Paul is always rejoicing in what God is doing. He, he rejoices, he writes to the Corinthians when they repent, the whole church repents, he rejoices. He rejoices when his ministry partners join him after having been absent. He rejoices when Christ is proclaimed, even when the people proclaiming Christ are doing it out of bad motives. Paul even rejoices in his sufferings because he suffers for the name of Christ. Paul is constantly rejoicing. And if you're familiar with his life, his life was not one of ease and comfort. His life was by all worldly standards, the worst. Shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, and eventually beheaded. And yet in that he rejoiced because he rejoiced in God. Rejoicing is what we do when we know and believe that God is good and that he is in control and that he is working all things in our lives for our good and his glory. Now, notice what this is not. This command to rejoice always is, is not a command to be naively happy and blissfully ignorant. It's not a command to stuff down any negative emotions that you might have. It's not a command to what maybe we would define as some surface-level happiness. How do we know that? Well, because while God commands us to rejoice always, we also see in Scripture the reality and hardships of life expressed 
in many different ways. We see it in Paul's letters. So Paul is always rejoicing, and yet we still see in his letters he feels anxiety for his churches. He's discouraged. He, he encourages the, 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 that is the hardest word to say, the Thessalonians to grieve in chapter 4. He encouraged them to grieve, but to grieve with hope. So saying rejoice always doesn't exclude grieving. It doesn't exclude sadness. It doesn't exclude some of these things. It's not a surface level emotion. Paul even expresses fear. So it doesn't exclude these things. I mean, Jesus himself, when he hears of Lazarus' death, it says he's in anguish in his soul. So, so don't hear this as, as some type of uh, psycho, psychology type, just suppress all emotion. That's not what this is about. Rejoicing in the Bible, rejoicing is not an emotion. It's, it's not something that happens to us. It's a command that we are to obey. It's an expression It's the soul's expression of faith in God, no matter what may come. It's it's not something that looks inward or that reacts to a feeling that you feel, but rather it's the opposite. It's looking outward and finding joy in God and who he is and what he's doing. This biblical idea of rejoicing is it's not focused on us. It's focused on God and his person, and his works. And that, that's the secret to obeying this command. That's how Paul could obey this command, in the midst of suffering. Because his joy, his rejoicing, is not based on his circumstances surrounding him. His joy is not based on how he feels at any given moment. His joy was in Christ, and in God, and in what he was doing. You can easily ask the question when you see this, rejoice always, I mean... Really, Paul, always. What if I'm sad? What if I'm grieving? What if I'm angry? Again, this command, and this is, this, is, this is the beauty of grace. God commands us and then provides what he commands. This joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So again, when God says, rejoice always, he's not saying, good luck with that. He's commanding us to rejoice. He's filling us with his Holy Spirit so that we're filled with joy and that we can express that back to him. The object is God himself. So even when we're suffering greatly, even if you're in affliction, because you're looking out to God and his works, he's unchanging. He's still perfect. He's still working powerfully in your life, in the world to make you more like Christ. And in that, in him, you can rejoice always. And this understanding is critical. Because again, when I, when I hear rejoice always, that word always is just so always, right? Like it, there's that kind of classic thing in, in marriage. They tell you, never say never and never say always, right? Because it's so all-encompassing. But Paul says, always. But Paul, again, what... How do we, what if I'm suffering? What if I'm in a dark season of affliction? Or maybe to frame it corporately again, what, what if our church is under persecution or, or being jailed or the government's coming after us or being persecuted or killed even? Are we to rejoice even then? And the answer in Scripture is a resounding yes. And the first place we can look for this is 
the Thessalonian church. They knew this well. This was their story. They were currently experiencing persecution as Paul writes them this letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. This was how they were, they were converted in the midst of affliction. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you see, affliction and joy, suffering and rejoicing are not mutually exclusive for the Christian. That was how their faith was, was begun, in the midst of much affliction, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So not only are we commanded to rejoice like they did in seasons of affliction, but God has graciously given us everything that we need to rejoice in our sufferings. Again, the answer is no surprise. It's because we're rejoicing in God and in his works. We're rejoicing in our salvation, even in the midst of affliction. We're rejoicing by reminding ourselves, and here's the secret, of what we know to be true. We rejoice by reminding ourselves what we know to be true, even in the midst of suffering. Well, what do we know? We know exactly what the Thessalonians knew. That in our trials, God is at work amongst us, sanctifying us and purifying us in preparation for the return of Christ. And we know that suffering, affliction, trials is one of his most effective tools in this process. And because we rejoice in God and in his works, and because our Christ-likeness and our focus is on that day when we will be presented blameless in holiness, we rejoice. We rejoice in the midst of our afflictions. Again, because the, the way that we look at our afflictions is with the lens of Scripture. Scriptures tell us this multiple times. They connect joy and suffering all the time. Look at James chapter 1. I think it's on the screen here. Count it all joy. Now again, notice that's an intentional action. He's not saying feel joyful. He's saying count it all joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now why? James, why should we count it joy when we meet trials? Listen to what he says. For you know, it's what we know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we count it all joy. We rejoice in sufferings. Why? Because of what we know. And what do we know again? That this testing, these trials produce, produce sanctification in our lives. They produce steadfastness. Steadfastness grows and has its full effect and it perfects and completes us. It sanctifies us. It's part of God's process in presenting us holy and blameless before him. This is what God is doing. See this again in Romans chapter 5. Exact same language. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. That's the good news. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, we get it. Not only that, 
but we rejoice in our sufferings. How? Look again. Knowing. It's because of what we know that we can rejoice in suffering. What do we know? Same exact words as James. That suffering produces. Suffering is productive. What does it produce, Paul? It produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So you see, we are commanded to rejoice always, but even in the midst of suffering, we can rejoice because of what we know, because of what God has revealed to us in his word That because of his grace, because he is sovereign, because he's working in all things, our suffering is never ineffective. It's always producing godly qualities in us. And so we can rejoice. And this rejoicing, our, our ability to rejoice in the midst of suffering, functions as a little bit of a, a litmus test in our Christian life. If you're finding yourself struggling to rejoice, unable to express joy in God, and, and I'm not saying this is an easy thing, but, but it, it, it means that the, the check engine light of your heart is blinking, if you'll accept my metaphor. Now, we're, again, this is only part of the sermon, so we're not going to go into this too much, but, but if, you're, if you're experiencing difficulty in rejoicing, rejoicing always, rejoicing in God, Check the focus of your heart. Is, is your hope and your joy found primarily in the glory of Christ and his perfections? Or, or have your eyes been distracted and has your hope and joy been caught up in things of the world? Earthly happiness, possessions, relationships, whatever it may be. Is your goal in this life To glorify Christ by becoming more and more like him? Is that your highest goal? Or is it to live a comfortable life, free from as much pain and stress as possible, filled with pleasure and and happiness now? Now, we all struggle with these things. but, But to the degree that our focus comes off of Christ and onto the things of this world, we will lose our ability to rejoice. I would urge you this morning, check your heart and put your gaze back on Christ. Put, put your eyes on that day when he will come again. Reorient your life back. May your aim be, may my aim be to be presented in holiness before him. Trust him. Trust that he knows what's best for you a thousand times more than you do, than I do. Look to him for your satisfaction. Look to Christ for your happiness. Let his glory be your aim. And in the midst of anything, you can sing for joy at the work of his hands, even in the midst of the darkest afflictions. That that is the secret of what the great martyrs of the faith knew. And if you've read the stories, you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you've read other stories of modern martyrs, you'll know that they often, not always, they often go to their horrific deaths singing hymns of joy and gladness, praising Christ. Some of them even praising Christ for the specific fact that they are counted worthy to suffer martyrdom. What do they know? 
that their suffering produced, that God was working in their suffering, that by their suffering they're being identified with Christ and God is being glorified. And so they could rejoice even in the face of death because their hope wasn't in life. Their hope was in the one who conquered death. And that is a hope and a joy, as Jesus tells his disciples, that no one can ever take from you. Brothers and sisters, God is is perfect in holiness. He's, He's infinite in goodness. He's magnificent in beauty. We could go on and on and on. And he's unchanging. He's unchanging. He's always faithful. And so his, his sanctifying work in our lives, no matter if it feels pleasant or feels hard, is for our good and his glory. And he will not fail. He is faithful. Because of this, we can, we must, we will, by the grace of God, rejoice always. Verse 18, this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. That's the first one. Rejoice always. Number two, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. By the way, I would just say these three verses, very short, very easy to memorize. Great verses to memorize if you want to start and be meditating on them. Been transformative in my life this last week. Pray without ceasing. Just as we're commanded to rejoice always, we're commanded to pray without ceasing. Without ceasing means always. It's basically the same thing, different word. To pray constantly, consistently. Our lives are to be lives of prayer. Our days are to be threaded throughout with prayer. Our homes are to be filled with prayer. And again, this is, this is a plural command. Our church is to, be church is to be filled with prayer. Our worship services are to be services of prayer. So this is why we, we pray in our worship service. This is why you've seen we've sung prayers. We've read prayers from Scripture. We are to be a people of constant prayer. That's what Paul's getting at here. Now, he doesn't mean by without ceasing that literally the only thing you ever do ever is pray. That's, that's not what this means. What he means is that a consistent, regular, habitual, frequent part of our gatherings and of our private lives is prayer. That's essentially what we have here. This is what a Christian's life should be marked by. Let's spend a little more time talking about this because, well, we'll get to that in a second. Let me, let me remind you or perhaps convince you how central prayer is to the Christian life. And then we're going to talk about some reasons that we so often fail to pray as we should. So first, prayer is absolutely vital to our faith, to our Christian life. It's I would say it's the most basic duty for the follower of Christ. Absolutely fundamental. And we understand that, but I think often we still miss, I still miss how important prayer is in our lives. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, he got it. He once said this, and if if you know him, he's famous as being the prince of preachers, the greatest preacher of all time. He said this, I would rather teach one man to pray than teach 10 men to preach. Why? Because he knew the power and importance of prayer. Theologian John Calvin, he calls prayer, I love this, the chief exercise of faith. 
Meaning, prayer is, is the primary expression of faith for a heart devoted to God. And what's, what's cool about that is you might hear the name John Calvin and think, well, isn't that the guy that talks a lot about predestination? And he does, but, but think about this. So in his, uh, his 1,500-page work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, you know how many pages predestination gets? Eleven, Okay. You know how many pages prayer gets? Over 70. What does this illustrate? It just illustrates that to him, prayer, it's actually the biggest section in his systematic theology. Prayer is the most important thing for a Christian. It's the chief exercise of our faith. We see this modeled throughout Scripture, right? Old Testament and New. We have prayers of Abraham, Moses, Hannah, David, Elijah, we've seen, and and many others. First and foremost, of course, we have the example of Christ himself. Jesus, the God-man, God in human flesh, was a man of prayer. Think about that for a second. He frequently withdrew from the crowds to spend extended time communing with God in prayer. It's obvious, but I'll say it. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to pray? Now, of course, Paul also models this. He's constantly telling his churches to pray. He's always asking his churches to pray for him, and he's always praying for them. In fact, he uses the same word here, without ceasing. In the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul's giving them an example right there. I'm constantly, I'm always praying for you. Paul, imitating Jesus here, is living and breathing prayer. Now, I think if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you know this in your head, we know this, but, man, we fail at it, don't we? Now, maybe I'm just projecting here, but I bet for most of us, our prayer life is one of the weakest areas of our Christian life. I heard one pastor say recently, if you want to humble any Christian... Just ask them how their prayer life is going, and they'll immediately kind of clam up. Because we know, we know that we're all falling short. As true believers in Christ, we we all want to pray more and to pray better. We all want to glorify God more in prayer, but it's a struggle. Our flesh fights against us. Now, I don't have some quick fix to fix it all for you. I don't have a five-step process to make you into the ultimate prayer warrior. I struggle with this just like you. But I do know that the things that often cause me to fail at prayer are are false beliefs and assumptions that we get tricked into believing. Some of the things, if you believe them about prayer, will just suck the motivation of your prayer life right out. So I want to deal with some of these false thoughts that lead to our our lack of prayer life. And we're going to take them captive and throw them right in the garbage can. These are things that Satan wants us to believe, because think about it. Nothing terrifies Satan more than a praying Christian. So here's a couple of thoughts, things that ruin our prayer life. Number one, we think of prayer as a burden, so we fail to pray. Framing is everything. If you think of it as something you have to do to be a good Christian, good luck. It's not going to go well. Something we have to do for God's benefit, something we have to do... A burden we must bear. Brothers and sisters, uh, this could not be farther from the truth. And again, this whole section, I'm preaching this to myself. 
Prayer is, is possibly the greatest privilege that we have. God has given us prayer as a gift for our benefit. Prayer is the means by which God has chosen to unleash his blessings in our life. Jesus died to forgive us of our sins. He died so that we might have access in the Spirit and through the Son to the Father in prayer. So Hebrews 4 can say that we now go to the throne of grace with boldness and confidence in our times of need. It's not a burden. It's a great privilege where we access the grace of God. Spurgeon says this, he says to pray, he just has a way with language. He says to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of inexhaustible an inexhaustible storehouse. In prayer, we're, we're gathering the riches that God has given us. God in his goodness, in his divine humility, takes pleasure in hearing our lame prayers and pouring out his blessings to us through them. He's decreed to work in and through the means of our prayers. This is the means. This is how we receive God's daily benefits and blessings in prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's not just about food. God has commanded us to pray for our benefit out of his desire to bless us. So it's, it's not a burden. It's an inestimable privilege. That's number one. Prayer is, is a privilege, not a burden. So if you're tempted sometimes to think of it as a burden, I am. Just remember, take that thought, say, nope, that's not true. Number two, we think that we can live the Christian life and obey God in our own strength. Now, again, it sounds foolish, but we live as if we think this is true when we fail to pray. And some of us more independent types, we hate to ask for help. And, and we push that tendency onto our spiritual life as well. Sometimes I think, maybe this is just me, I, sometimes we think, we're tempted to think that God expects us to live our Christian life in our own strength. And if we have to, if we're like too weak to do it, then we can come to him in prayer and he'll help us. Now, I know that that's wrong intellectually, but that thought still swims around in my head sometimes. As if I shouldn't need to ask God's help to get rid of this sin. I shouldn't need to ask God's help to to do this or that. I should just be able to do it, and that would actually make God more happy than if I needed his help. I'll just fix it. I'll just take care of it on my own, and, and that will be better. There's this temptation to think that it might, maybe it would bring more God more glory if I could just do this on my own, uh, you know, but that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. See, in and of ourselves, <laughs> we're devoid of all the good things, of all the willpower that we need to live the Christian life. We don't have the strength. We don't have the willpower. We don't have the ability to grow in sanctification on our own. And God's not ignorant of this. It's why he sent Christ on our behalf. It's why he sent the Spirit to dwell in us. It's why he's given us prayer to access his power. access all the resources that we need to glorify him we receive them from him and how do we do this through prayer how often do we need this how often do we need his strength and power constantly 
without ceasing every day. So then we must pray as often as we need his power without ceasing. God is glorified most in our weakness and dependence on him. That's why Paul can write this in 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The chief expression of this weakness is prayer. Number three, we think of prayer only as asking for things. It's false. We limit ourselves. We limit our prayer life. If we think prayer is only about asking God for things, that gets old pretty quick. Now, it is absolutely that, but it's much more than that. We can pray prayers of praise, prayers of adoration, prayers of worship, prayers of lament, prayers of wrestling with God, prayers of of doubt, prayers of frustration, prayers thanking God. Think of all the different ways that the psalmist prays. Prayer is much more than just asking God for things. Prayers of confession, prayers of just communing with God. That's number three. Number four, we think God tires of us praying the same things over and over. But he doesn't. In Luke chapter 18, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read it right at the beginning of Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells his disciples a parable to the effect, it says, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And it's about this widow who just bugs uh, this wicked judge over and over and over until he finally gives her what he wants. And Jesus says, If a judge would give in to something like that, how much more God who's good and holy and loves you? We'll never tire God. We'll never bug him with our prayers. And number five, this one might be the most fatal. We have an unbiblical, fatalistic mindset. And this is one I fear that has sidetracked many of us. It's, It's sidetracked me. We know and believe that God is sovereign. He's in control. We trust that he is good. So why pray? Just, just God, just do what you're going to do. I trust you. I don't need to bug you about it. I mean, then there's a sense in which we think, isn't that faith, actually? I'm trusting God. But it's not faith. It's actually an undercover expression of, of unbelief in an unbiblical mindset. Again, I'm preaching to myself. And that mindset will just suck all the motivation for prayer right out of your life. It's, it's unbelief. And why do I say that? Because the scriptures never teach us to think this way. The scriptures never teach us that the more faith you have in God, the less you will pray. It's, it's, it's the complete opposite. Prayer is, is the chief expression of faith. So the more faith you have in God, the more you will pray, the more you will feel your dependence upon him. Again, Christ prayed constantly. He knew that God is sovereign and that God is good, infinitely so. So then, then why pray? To express our faith, of course. But, but why pray if God is sovereign? Let me give you a couple of thoughts on this. Number one, the, the very act of praying reminds us of our our, our needfulness and of our weakness. We need this reminder. So just the act of praying reminds us how weak we are, and we need that. God uses that for our spiritual benefit. Number two, taking all of our needs to God checks our hearts, right? 
it guards us against ungodly needs and wants. If there's something that you don't want to pray, that you want, that you don't want to pray to God about, it's probably not something you really should have. Number three, praying for things. Think about this. Praying for things and then receiving them trains our hearts to remember that all good things come from God. It trains our hearts in in thankfulness. So God can just give us good things. He can orchestrate blessings in our lives, and he does by his grace. But how much better is it when it's something that we've intentionally prayed for, and then he answers, gives us the opportunity to thank him even more, and give us a greater delight. Number four, receiving answers in prayer, again, gives us another occasion and reason to meditate upon God's goodness and kindness towards us. Praying for things and then watching God answer fuels our praise and our love for him. And lastly, prayer confirms our belief in God's providence as we pray and watch how things happen around us. We see that God has been orchestrating answers to our prayers even before we had prayed them. Prayer is an expression of our faith and God uses it to mold and shape our hearts. So get rid of these false beliefs. Don't let them suck the motivation of your prayer life. Pray, pray. It's a great weapon. It's a great privilege that we have. Pray. There's plenty of practical ways to do this. We're not going to really go through any of them here. Come to our monthly prayer gatherings. Pray the Lord. If you, I don't know what to pray. Pray the Lord's prayer. Pray the Lord's prayer in the, the morning and in the evening. Take each phrase and just meditate on what, what Christ is commanding us to pray for. Pray the scriptures. Pray the Psalms. There's a big stack of books in the back called Praying the Bible. Grab that. It will teach you how to pray the scriptures. Wonderful addition to your prayer life. This is the will of God for Christ, for us in Christ Jesus. Pray without ceasing. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Third, don't worry. The section's a lot shorter. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, really, again, you can see how all of these things are overlapping. They're so intimately connected. If we're, to, if we're giving thanks to God in all circumstances, then we're going to be rejoicing, and that's going to lead to giving thanks. And how do we give thanks to God? Well, we pray our thanks to God. And so if we're constantly giving thanks to God, then we'll be able to rejoice. It's this beautiful, spirit-given cycle of sanctification, if you're struggling with giving thanks to God, again, this can be hard for us. We're, we're so easily discontented. If you're struggling giving thanks to God for whatever reason, whatever circumstance, the answer is the same as the last two sections. The answer is the same as how you rejoice in suffering. Remind yourself of what you know. What you know. What truth is the fuel that drives our thanksgiving? In all circumstances, again, that God in his love is working all things for our good. Romans 8.28. This is such a cited passage that sometimes we, I think we overlook the amazing truth in here. And we know, there's that word again, we know. It's about what we know. We know that for those who love God, all things. Now that all things, that's exact same phrase that Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances. It's different, translated differently, same phrase. All things, you could say, in all circumstances, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What is God doing by working all these things for good? To be conformed 
the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So take heart, church. God is making all things, all circumstances work for our good, for your good. He's using all of them. What is our good? To be conformed to the image of his son. So take heart in this life, even the darkest and most painful suffering. God is, is working for us, Paul says, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And because of that, we can and we must give thanks to him in all circumstances. And remember, if you're struggling in these things, what do you know? Go back to these passages. Tell your soul, soul, like the psalmist does this, soul, why are you so downcast? Know that the Lord is good. And again, verse 18, why should we strive towards these things? Why should we seek to obey God? Yes, to obey God, but look at verse 18. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for us. This is what he wants from us. This is what he's working in us. This is what he will accomplish in us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. It's all about Christ, church. When you're struggling to rejoice, when you're struggling to pray, when you're struggling to be thankful to God, take your eyes off yourself and look to Christ in faith. Don't look for the solution in yourself. Look for it in Christ. Christ crucified, risen, and coming again is is where our eyes must always be fixed. He's the reason for our joy. He's the motivation for our prayer. He's the ultimate basis for our thanksgiving. Our whole Christian life flows out of Him. We are waiting, church, for His return. We are waiting for that day when we will rejoice together in His presence but it hasn't come yet. We're still waiting. So let's not wait idly. God is sanctifying us. God's preparing us for the return of Christ. That is the motivation that we need to join in that work. So let us be a people marked by constant rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving. This is the will of God for Del Cerro Baptist Church in Christ Jesus. It's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And it's the will of God for me in Christ Jesus. Christ who saved us, who is sanctifying us, and who will one day return in glory for us. So let's be a people who rejoice in Jesus, who pray in the name of Jesus, and who give thanks in all things because our eyes are fixed on Jesus, our Savior, and our King. He's our hope. He's our joy. He is our satisfaction. He is our salvation. He's our glory. And He is our sanctification. Have no doubt about this, church. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Heavenly